was a water bear I wouldn't have to care when you try to hurt me Crispy Folks with me, your host, Crispin Schroeder. Hey man, that's not your regular theme song. No, this is Water Bears Don't Care, my ode to the damn near indestructible micro-animal that is the water bear. If you're not familiar with the water bear, just type it in and look it up on Google search and you will be educated. One of my favorite creatures. Just came out Friday, and you can hear it on Spotify. While you're on Spotify, hit follow on Crispin Schroeder. You'll get the next single served up in a few weeks when it comes out. Or Apple Music, or wherever you listen to it. It's available everywhere. Today's podcast, though, we're going to be looking at the craziness of the world today. Some wisdom from George Orwell. As well as some wisdom from the 12 Steps, so... Let's head to today's podcast. Thanks for listening. Humanity makes it through this rough patch that we're going through right now. I really believe that in a hundred years, when people look back at this time in history, they will agree that it was probably the most significant time of change that humanity has ever experienced. And I think one of the fundamental drivers of this change is no doubt technology. And when I speak of this this patch. <laughs> I'm talking about the last three decades up to the present moment. We have seen with the proliferation of the internet and everybody getting connected in the 90s and then the subsequent rise of smartphones and social media that now we, we have access to information in ways that would have seemed impossible 50 years ago 
These are the days of miracles and wonders, as Paul Simon once sang. And it's it's crazy thinking, like, in my pocket, I have access to most of the information in the world that has existed in my pocket. I can just pull it out and look up anything. But it also means that because of our access to information, that trusted authorities on any issues uh, have, have fallen down uh, a few notches in their importance. You know, I mean, even back in the 90s, the nightly news was still a pretty big thing, or you would read, read the newspaper as your trusted news source. Uh, but the average episode of, of Joe Rogan gets millions of more listens than viewers on NBC Nightly News, um, for instance. And I, I've seen this even in 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 the church world. I've up until January this year, I was pastor at a church that uh, North Shore Vineyard, where I pastored for ten years and have been involved in ministry in the church uh, for about twenty five years. But you know, back when I first came to be a Christian in in the early nineties as an adult. You know, I remember going to church and whatever the pastor said, man, that he was he was the final word on truth. And that's kind of the way most people who went to church kind of understood it. However, I mean, the whole time I was pastoring over the last 10 years, I never went in with that assumption. And I've I've read a lot of stats that the typical person who goes to a church um, actually watches a TV evangelist when they're not going to church or they listen to other pastors on podcasts. So even as a pastor, you are one voice among many rather being the, you know, central voice that, that people go to for um, help in their spiritual journey. And so I know that anything that I would say on a Sunday morning, like if I'm talking about something historically or theologically, people can go look up the stuff and, and, you know, know whether I'm right or wrong. So it, it, you know, I guess it's, it's a good way of keeping people honest, but one of the most significant players in this new economy of information, uh, no doubt has been YouTube. And when, you know, I guess YouTube came on the scene kind of early to mid two thousands, um, I, I love, you know, late at night kind of watching YouTube for an hour sometimes. And I learn a lot about music and a lot of different issues, philosophy and different things like that. But, you know, in the mid to late 2000s, the aughts, uh, I had several friends of mine who started watching videos produced by folks like Christopher Hitchens and... Daniel Dennett and Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris, um, a group that is kind of collectively known as the New Atheist. And many of these Christian friends of mine were hearing people questioning Christian, you know, the Christian religion or religion in general in ways that they had never heard anybody question. I mean, these were whole new questions and the way the arguments were framed, many of them just couldn't find answers to combat them at all. And, and, and there were several friends of mine that actually just either became atheists or just like highly agnostic 
uh, kind of kind of just gave up on church altogether. Now, I've I've said on this podcast many times that you know, I spent the better part of twenty years in deconstruction myself. I mean, I I began deconstructing my faith in the late nineties just because I saw some some really bad abusive stuff going on in the church. You know, control, manipulation, pastors who seemed to be in it more to line their pockets and have big houses and fancy cars than they were about actually helping society and helping people in the church. And I really began to ask a lot of questions about the faith, but I was never really interested in just doing away with faith because I really do believe that I've had some experiences with God. Now you may just say, well, it's just my own mind or whatever. Uh, Maybe, but I, I'm going to say it was God (laughs) That that's the way it seems to me, but in my questioning, you know, I, I rarely ever entered the, entertained the idea. I, I did occasionally that you know maybe there was no God. Um, but a lot of people who who did watch these kinds of videos, they 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 were very compelling, and and they you know ended up just leaving organized religion altogether or not having any faith at all. Yet. When it comes to one of the main arguments of the new atheist being, you know, that religion, you know, the world would be better if we could do away with religion. I, I think that that as logical as, as many of these brilliant folks like um, Hitchens and Dawkins are, there is a real hole in their logic. And you, you could ask the question, you know, is religion even something that can be done away with or is religion so fundamental to how humans understand the world and understand reality that it's not something you can ever get rid of and and in essence you know remember that game whack-a-mole you know you may have played at chuck e cheese or at a carnival or something you know you you knock one mole down and another pops back up and i think that that's really what would happen if tomorrow say all the major world religions, the leaders of all the major world religions just said, uh, you know, we, we just came to believe that, yeah, this whole God thing, it's not really real. We can't prove that there's a God and we're just going to shut down Christianity and Islam and Judaism and Hinduism. Do you really think that there wouldn't be something that immediately arose to take that place? And this is a very interesting question because I I think even if you look at the last century, you look at some of the revolutions that were not motivated by religion, like the Bolshevik revolution and and this, you know, that that led to the Soviet union or the uh, cultural revolution in China, you look at a lot of these revolutions or, or, you know, you could even apply, apply this to the Nazi state. Um, they, they certainly weren't, they, they, they used religion a little bit, but certainly <laughs> was nowhere near uh, Christianity. But you look at all the, you know, the tens and tens of millions of lives that were lost last century for, from movements that were not even religious in the sense that we think of religion. And I think that, that, those movements really actually demonstrate this religious impulse within humanity. But, but here's the deal. The difference between 
a non-religion, a, a non-religious ideology filling the vacuum where religion would once be versus a religion is that at least, at the very least, no matter how much destruction religions have actually brought on the world, but at the very least, if you look at Islam, Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism, they all have a moral code. They are a way of organizing life so that you can be a good person. <laughs> and they all have an aim. You know, like for, for me, uh, I, I try to organize my life around the moral teachings, uh, the teachings of Jesus, you know, and, and the aim of my life is to become more like Christ, that I would become more loving, more honest, um, a, a, a person of character and, and integrity. And to the extent that, that religion is that for someone, whether it's Judaism or Islam or Christianity or Hinduism, I think that religion is actually super helpful because you have kind of a path and a trajectory towards your life. But when we look at the United States, you know, particularly in the last two decades, the, the fastest growing group on the religious landscape in the United States right now is what they call the nons. These are people who are not affiliated with any organized or institutional religion. They've given up on it. Most of these have, are people who were raised in the church who've left the church. Now, not all these people have given up on believing in God, but they've just found the church to be not terribly helpful. And I totally get that. I totally sympathize with that. I, I'm kind of uh, amazed that I made it in, in church as long as I did because I had some serious issues with a lot of stuff that I saw in the church. But here we are at a time where a huge percentage of the population in, in the United States has given up on the institutions of religion. Uh, also, there's a lot of questioning of other institutions from politics to um, entertainment and science and stuff like that going on. But here we have, now we're in this time of, of, you know, a lot of craziness and anxiety in the world. We've, we've got COVID all over the world. Uh, we got quarantines and lockdowns and people wearing masks. We've got social unrest. We've got protests. And I think people are, are, are very scared right now about the future. And, and I see... When I, you know, I'm, I'm very concerned when I look at a lot of the protests going on of the uh, violent, destructive type, I, I am seeing a religious fervor around political ideology right now that I haven't seen in my lifetime. And that's what is really scaring me about where we are in the world today is that I think a lot of people have abandoned religion, you know, particularly Christianity in this country with good reason, because I think the church in this country has been way too entangled with politics, um, way too distracted from, you know, the main, the main points of Jesus got way too into materialism and other, other issues along the way. I could do a whole podcast on that yet. Now we're in a time of crisis where a lot of people have given up on the church and what is replacing that 
religious impulse that has been exercised in religious ways is now being replaced by zealous political ideology. But the difference between ideology, political ideology, and religion, at least, you know, the best kind of religion, is that at least religion offers you a path forward. It offers you a moral code. It offers you a direction for your life. It is a path a, of, of spiritual formation. But ideology, not so much. This last week, I took a trip to Texas, went and visited some friends over in Conroe, and then went up to my dad's in East Texas. And when I started the trip, Last Friday, uh, I was listening to a podcast, and one of the guys on the podcast used the term Orwellian, and I realized, like, I've been using that word Orwellian a lot lately. Maybe I need to <laughs> revisit George Orwell. So I'm um, outside of Baton Rouge, and I ordered the audiobook for 1984, and I was blown away with how perceptive George Orwell is about what both leads to tyranny and what sustains uh, tyranny or totalitarianism. And at the end of the book, there's this uh, point where, you know, the main character, spoiler alert, if you have not read the book, I don't think this will spoil it for you, but uh, Winston, the, the main character in the book is being interrogated by, uh, the government, the totalitarian government that is ruling things. And, and his inquisitor, a guy by the name of O'Brien, finally reveals the heart of what the totalitarian regime is really about. He says this, Now I will tell you the answer to my question. It is this, The party seeks power entirely for its own sake. We are not interested in the good of others. We are interested solely in power, pure power. What pure power means, you will understand presently. We are different from the oligarchies of the past in that we know what we are doing. All the others, even those who resembled ourselves, were cowards and hypocrites. The German Nazis and the Russian communists came very close to us in their methods, but they never had the courage to recognize their own motives." They pretended, perhaps even they even believed, that they had seized power unwillingly and for a limited time, and that just around the corner there lay a paradise where human beings would be free and equal. We are not like that. We know that no one ever seizes power with the intention of relinquishing it. Power is not a means. It is an end. One does not establish a dictatorship in order to safeguard a revolution. One makes the revolution in order to establish the dictatorship. The object of persecution is persecution. The object of torture is torture. The object of power is power. Now you begin to understand me. This passage really gets at the heart of I think a lot of what's going on in our world today, we have these political ideologies, which people are flocking to in the absence of a compelling religious way forward. There is a vacuum in the spiritual landscape 
and people are flocking, you know, they're, they're, they're taking their angst somewhere <laughs> and taking to the streets and burning buildings down and trashing cars and, and hurting one another. And I'm not saying that, that the protesters themselves don't have a reason to be protesting. I am like most other Americans. I'm horrified at what happened to George Floyd. We need to see the end of police brutality. And I believe we, we actually have a window to, to, to really actually seriously deal with some of the issues in this country right now. I believe there are a handful of issues that most Americans can get on board with, uh, whether you're on the left or right. There could be a lot of agreement on reforming police departments, uh, reforming the political, uh, I mean, the criminal justice system, reforming the drug policies in this nation. There's a lot of things that can be done. But right now, there's a lot of people destroying things in this country. Um, and, and, and it is really scaring me because one thing that you can see time and time again, even if you just look at the last century, is oftentimes the ones that uh, revolt and overthrow a tyrant become twice the tyrant of the tyrant they overthrew. This is why somebody like Martin Luther King is still so compelling to me today. Martin Luther King Jr. understood that if you respond to hate with hate, you're just going to multiply destruction exponentially, even if you have a good reason to respond to hate with hate. The only thing that can cast out darkness is light. The only thing that can bring healing is love. And Martin Luther King, inspired by the teachings of Jesus and the example of even Gandhi, engaged in the path of nonviolent resistance. Now, nonviolent resistance, a lot of people think, well, that's just, that's silly. We need change. We need it now. But if you can move from the place of nonviolent resistance to thinking you are justified in destroying things and hurting people, what makes you think you are going to create some kind of paradise where everybody's going to be able to live at peace. You are already forming yourself by the way of violence. Instead of being motivated by love and care and actually wanting to bring healing, you're motivated by jealousy and contempt and you're tearing things down. I'm really scared for the world that we're in right now. But in a sense, I believe that, that we are at a crossroads in this country. And I get why people have abandoned religion. I think people have a lot of good reasons to, to leave church in the United States right now. But we abandon religion at our own peril. Because if you don't have a path for your own individual life that has some sort of moral code and some sort of goal that you are shooting at, even if you know you will never hit that goal. I know I will never become just like Jesus in my life, no matter how much effort I, I want to apply to it. But I'm aiming at that. I'm aiming to become a better person, you know, a person who is more authentic and honest and loving and caring and, and just in my dealings. I'm aiming at that. And, and thus far, I can see, at least in my own life, 
that's been a good journey to be on. It has made me a better person. It's made me less, less selfish, less jealous, less um, clingy to my own possessions, and more trusting of, of God in the midst of this. I think our country is ripe for a spiritual awakening. And maybe the spiritual awakening doesn't look like, you know, the old school revivals that I occasionally witnessed in church back in the 90s. Maybe this is a renewal of people realizing like our world is out of control and I need to entrust my life to a higher power. I need to take care of myself. I need to get things right on the inside of me before I set about to change the world. It is so easy to get up in arms about wanting to change the world, but, but so often what we do is we project onto the world that which we are unwilling to face in our own hearts. The angst that we have about the injustice out there is really something we haven't faced in ourselves. This is why I, you know, I, I even did an episode on this probably a year and a half ago, but you know, one of the most compelling things that Jesus ever said was before you set about to remove the speck out of your neighbor's eye, deal with the two by four in your own eye, take the plank out of your own eye first, and then you can see clearly to help other people with the speck of sawdust in their eye. And this is so important as much as we may be tempted to take to the streets and just start tearing things down or, you know, just coming at our enemies, we need to deal with the stuff in our own hearts. And one of the best ways, and I've, I've used this example a few times on this podcast over the last three years, but one of the best ways to do that, that I've found actually comes from the world of recovery, the 12 steps. I think the United States is, is, in a really good place right now to do the first three steps of the 12 steps. I'm, I'm a little bummed that the 12 steps are so associated with alcoholism that most people never pay attention to them. But I, I think they're one of the best ways to begin experiencing spiritual renewal. The first step is we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. You can take the alcohol out of there. Just, just say, we admitted that we were powerless and that our lives had become unmanageable. Is that not the world that we're living in right now? These, these problems from the pandemic to the economy to all these issues, like, like our life is out of control and unmanageable as a people. Let's just admit that. Let's just admit that things are broken. <laughs> Number two came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. This is such an invitation into humility. You know, I don't have the answers. Everything is out of control, but I believe that there's a power greater than myself that can restore us to, to sanity. Number three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand God. This is... There's so much wisdom in these steps, and that's why I think so many people struggling with addictions have found help through the 12 steps. But this is, this is the, the beginning of a spiritual awakening if you actually take these three steps seriously. You admit things are out of control. My life's unmanageable. 
a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity. And I will turn my life and will over to the, to the care of God as I understand God. So I'm not even telling you to understand God the same way that I do. But I think what is called for right now is, is a bit of surrender. God, we need your help right now. Whatever, however you look like, whoever you are, I'm going to open my life to you. I, I'm going to surrender. I'm going to invite you to um, take over my life. I'm going to put up a sail, so to speak, to let the wind of your spirit carry me. Now, that doesn't solve all the problems. That's the first three steps. And if you go through the rest of the 12 steps, there's a lot more stuff you'll be getting into. But I think right now, I'm, I'm really concerned that the religious fervor, which is being place not in religion anymore, but now in political ideologies, it is going to end badly if that stuff takes over in a powerful way in this country. I'm going to close today by reading a prayer that is used quite often in the 12-step program, the prayer for serenity. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking, as Jesus did, the sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. Trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen. Thanks for listening to Extra Crispy.